You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to go to God's Word now. We continue in this four-part series that we're calling Dreams for a Faithful Tomorrow. And today um, we are brought to God's Word in Luke chapter 10. And so if you have your Bible, you can follow along with us. We'll read Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 25. This is uh, one of probably Jesus' most famous or more famous parables, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I hope that we can look at this not with stale eyes or understanding, but with fresh eyes and a heart ready to receive what he has for us today. Uh, Let's read God's word, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I love the art and science of making coffee. Last service, I got some amens. <laughs> understanding how it works, understanding how to brew. It's really more enjoyable for me to do that than it actually is to drink the coffee. I mean, coffee is not that tasteful unless you load it up with sugar and cream. There are many different kinds of brew methods. There's AeroPress, there's pour-over, there's French press, there's the Turkish-style coffee, there's regular drip coffee, there's ristretto and espresso and percolator methods, and my personal favorite, the Keurig. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. Uh, No self-respecting coffee drinker would ever say that. I discovered a, a new kind of method not too long ago, thanks to my my sister, and that's the brew method called the mocha pot, M-O-K-A, the mocha pot. It's an Italian method of brewing coffee on the stove. It uses pressure, no electricity, to, steam for, to, in, it, to force steam from this bottom chamber, forcing it through this membrane to the grounds, resulting in a beautiful, dense, flavorful, authentic cup of coffee. It's delightful. Why, why explain all this other than just to let you know a little bit about myself? Jesus tells this parable in 
our passage, a made-up story that by design is meant to apply pressure to the hearts of every person listening and to bring the sur- to the surface what is deep down in the core of their being. Every kind of brew method out there is, it has one purpose, and that is to force water through the bean to get what's inside that bean, outside of that bean, for you to enjoy. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is creating tension and pressure. He is ruffling feathers. He is creating controversy in order to reveal what is in the hearts of everyone listening. He is meant, he's telling a story meant to mess with the status quo when it comes to how we are to respond to the suffering of others. And Jesus is wanting to reveal what's in their hearts. I know this is why he's telling the story, because our passage tells us that Jesus is responding to this man's direct attempts to justify himself according to his own good work. The man was preoccupied with all the good things that he did, preoccupied with his sense of, of rightness that he had, which revealed a very shallow view of compassion. And Jesus, perceiving this in his heart, tells this parable. The man was looking to dot every I, to cross every T, when it comes to being that kind of person that does it right. And then he asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? To which is the obvious answer in this parable that everyone, everywhere, especially those close to you and especially those in need, that is your neighbor. But he, looking to justify himself, because he was probably pretty good neighbor, a, 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 a among a few kinds of people or a certain kind of people. And Jesus wanted to reveal what was in his heart. We're in a four-part series called Dreams for a Faithful Tomorrow. And today we dig deeper into the dream to be a compassionate neighbor. I want to do something now and start by looking at this parable, not through the eyes of Christ, which we'll get to obviously, but first through the eyes of the world. How might the world respond in different ways that the world responds to situations like this when people are hurting, when people are, uh, are uh, victims of crime? And so let's look at it through the eyes of the world. Being creative for a minute and consider likely responses to scenarios to, of common figures in our society. Let's look at the NRA first, the National Rifle Association. How might they respond to a police report like this? The NRA might say, well, if that traveler was armed, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, would we? The ACLU might say, well, this crime was the result of local government's failure to provide anti-bullying training for its community. The only remedy to this kind of injustice is to force local governments to invest millions of dollars into anti-bullying training and compliance. What might the right-wing folks say? Why was he going to Jericho? That seems suspicious. Jericho's known for the drugs and prostitution. Sounds like he was making bad choices all along, and this was bound to happen eventually. He should have known better. He should have stayed out of that neighborhood. This is really his own doing. What would the left-wing folks say? They might say, well, before we start pointing fingers at who's to blame or these young men, let's discuss what we are doing as a society to provide livable wage to all Jerusalemites. 
I'm not done. So that they are not forced into such desperate acts of survival. You see, this confrontation was merely a more equitable redistribution of assets that they have been deprived of for far too long. To which the wealthy Levites and the priests who had walked by would reply, I don't see what the big deal is. The police report clearly says this man was left half dead, and that means he was half alive, and half alive is better off than most people live in other countries. He should be so lucky. Did I offend anyone? Did anyone hear maybe a group that they might not align with and say, oh, they always say those kinds of things. How ridiculous. And then when it comes to your response of what you align with, say, hey, I don't say that. If you feel even a little uncomfortable with some of those responses to this man's situation, then you're ready to hear this parable. Because that's the exact situation that Jesus is desiring for his listeners to be in. It is meant to provoke. It is meant to stir the pot. It's meant to ruffle the feathers and even to show a mirror to the heart's of us, of all the ugliness that's inside. The God of the Bible is the God who insists that all people get on board with the sanctity of human life, not just certain segments of it. From the moment of conception to the day of transitioning into that next life, every person has dignity and worth and value without prejudice to their mental contribution or material contribution for what we might view as a societal, societal progress or regard to their intelligence or even in regard to the, or their ability or their, to the degree that they obey the law. And what Jesus is wanting to do is he's saying when pressure is applied, what pours out? The more faithfully we walk with Jesus, the more broad and wide our compassion for others will be. And the more slow we will be to say, yeah, but here are the reasons why he or she should not receive my compassion. Here is how they got into that situation to begin with. Here is how they are undeserving of my time and energy. And Jesus is wanting to provoke that. And then he tells a story to say, okay, this is how the world looks at this situation through the world's eyes. Now look at it through my eyes. And he tells the parable. What does Jesus show us through this parable? I believe he reveals at least three categories when it comes to compassion In this passage, understanding compassion, receiving compassion, and giving compassion. Pretty straightforward, right? Let's look at this more deeply. What does it look like to understand compassion? What are we to understand when it comes to compassion? The best synonym for compassion might be mercy or pity, and even can be used interchangeably. Even in this passage, it is. It's what the Samaritan feels when he sees the man lying in the road in the ditch half dead. And it's what Jesus calls us to at the end of this parable, to go and do likewise. Compassion is what happens when the sight of suffering 
any kind of suffering propels us towards that person rather than draws us away from that person. Except when that suffering of that person is that person's own fault, right? Wrong. <laughs> I tricked you. Some of you are like, I feel like this is a trap. Compassion is what boils up. It's what naturally just overflows. Compassion is, is different, actually, than other actions and other responses like grace or even Christian charity because compassion does not originate from an intellectual decision but from our guts. You see, it's, compassion isn't something that we stop and, and assess the situation, get all the facts, and then respond to. Compassion is something that when pressure is applied, it just flows out like a fountain. That's how compassion is different. It comes from this deep seat of, of a motivational core. It flows out from our, most literally in the scriptures, from our insides, from our guts, from our innards, from our womb, the Bible would even say at times. It's not so much something that we choose to be, but it's something, it's a passion that overflows. You, you may have heard this before, compassion is a visceral experience, meaning Visceral meaning from deep within inside, the insides of a person. When someone boils over, and you've heard this before, maybe you've heard it in public, uh, a, a pu pu high-profile public person, they're caught in some kind of indiscretion and sin, and they come out publicly and say, that wasn't me, I don't know what got into me. But Jesus would have us know that it's not something that, that got into us. It's something that came out of us. But we say, well, I don't know what got into me. But really what it's revealing is when pressure is applied, what pours out? Is it compassion or something else? Compassion is not our normal tendency that's why this parable is so scandalous and offensive. When Jesus tells the story and says that this Samaritan came upon this man half dead in the street and he saw him, he had compassion. That was his reaction. Not his decision, it was his reaction. His decision is everything that followed from that, but his reaction to this was compassion, an overflow of pity and mercy for this person. And that's not our normal tendency. That's not our nature to be compassionate. Our normal tendency is actually to give people what they deserve. At our very hearts, as broken and sinful people, we are naturally pro bono prosecution attorneys. Some of us much better than others. If only you and I could get paid for making people pay for what they deserve right? If only we could make people pay for all of their mistakes, if that was our job, some of us could quit our day jobs. So compassion is a foreign passion. It's not something we're good at. The opposite of compassion is hard-heartedness. It is looking at the suffering of others and our heart bending towards hardness, and apathy, judgment, hatred, cruelty, self-justification. 
It is what causes us to move away from their suffering rather than running towards their suffering. Compassion is the ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core when pressure is applied. When you squeeze something, what comes out? When you are squeezed, over the last 10, 12 months, our lives have been thrown into a crucible exposing what's deep in our hearts. Whether it's been a result of isolation or national conflict or things that we see on the news or things that have been done to us personally, when you are squeezed, what comes out? Assess your own life. And if compassion isn't that which boils over, then what is it? Is it apathy? A lack of interest? I just don't care. I don't even want to think about it. Is it self-righteousness and self-defense? Is it talking about all the things that you do well? Well, yeah, maybe I'm not great at this, and maybe I'm not an all-star in this, or maybe I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really faithful in that. But look at all the ways that I am a good person. I am a good Christian. I do all these good things. Is it anger? Is it irritability? Do you hate Do you want people to just be put in their place? Is it control or manipulation? When tension and pressure comes into your life, do you think to yourself, okay, I just have to figure out a way to protect myself, to protect my family? Do you point fingers and blame others? This is what's wrong with the world. You are what's wrong with the world. Their ideas, that's what's wrong with the world. All of those things that boil over, none of those are from the Lord. That's how we should understand compassion. That's how we should understand it. It's something that just boils over. Is it there? Is compassion what comes out? But how do we receive it, right? So, some, so compassion isn't just this thing that we do. It's not this character trait that we can just go and, and purchase. But it's something that we receive. Now, if you look at this story and the characters, it would be easy to say, Okay, I don't want to be like the priest. I don't want to be like the Levite. That's obvious in this story. And I want to be like the good Samaritan. Right? It's very easy. And that's not a wrong application of this. But if, you, if that's all that you do there is say, okay, don't be this. Start being this. Then you've skipped a very important step. In fact, not only an important step, but you have skipped the very key to understanding the entire passage. The key to this passage is in understanding who are we in this passion, uh, passage? Who do we identify with most in this story? Some might say we are to identify primarily with the Good Samaritan, the one who does the noble thing. And Jesus gets there, of course. We are to apply the actions of the Good Samaritan and go and do likewise. But, that's, but Jesus doesn't just go right to that. He intends for us to see ourselves not as the good Samaritan, but first as the half-dead man in the streets. And here is how Jesus gets to this. He is telling a story to who? To a group of Jews. And who is the victim? Who is the half-dead character in this story? It is a Jewish man. Who is the hero of this story? It's the good Samaritan. How scandalous. This is offensive. 
as Jesus is telling this story, And the Jews hear that the one beat down and broken and half dead and powerless is the one of their ethnicity that they are to to identify with. And then along comes the hero of the story that will rescue the Jew. And it's a Samaritan. That's when their ears would have just turned off and they would have become angry and incited. That would have been so, it would have been so offensive. Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews, the outcasts, the unclean people despised by the Jewish people. They were the ones cut off from God's blessings. There is no way that in telling this story that initially the Jews would have placed themselves in the character of the Samaritan. To do so would to put themselves and to identify with that which is outcast, unclean, and their greatest enemy. So how do we begin to acquire compassion? We get compassion when we realize how much we need it. Jesus would have us consider by by receiving this story as a first century Jewish person, What if your only hope for life was to get help from someone that not only didn't need to help you, but had every justification in their life to step over you as you were dying? To look over your needs, to look over your pain and suffering. What if the only person that could help you is the person that you have hated your whole life? According to the Bible, we are all like that man in the street. And when Jesus came in the world, he came down that road and he saw our suffering, although we were his enemies, cast out from the family of God, apart from his blessings, without mercy. He was moved with compassion. He, from heaven, he looked down on the state of our lives and he was, and what overflowed was compassion mercy and pity. He came to save us, not merely at the risk of his life and the cost of some of his assets, but at the risk and cost of it all, the very life that he had to give. This is the story of the good Samaritan, and Jesus presents himself in the scriptures as the the great Samaritan. He walked the earth and encountered dehumanized people, and he humanized them. He saw their struggles. If compassion clothed itself in a human body and went around the world, it would look like Jesus. From this book, Gentle and Lonely, I promise I'm not making any money on this. (laughs) Dane Ortland says, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. What causes the heart of God to overflow in compassion for us is not because we have presented ourselves as good, moral people, but the opposite. Because we are dead in the ditch with no help 
And that stirs his heart to pursue us, to roll up his sleeves, and to give his life for us. Junior high of high school, I was on the way to winter formal, and I thought it was a good idea to get in a car race with another friend on the highway. And I lost, so I got the ticket, right? I lost, so the the loser gets pulled over by the cops. Yeah. (laughs) I lost, so I'm sitting there. The kids, it's never a good idea, okay? And he says, you you have to, now because I was a juvenile, he says, you have to go to juvie, you have to go to court, and you have to bring a parent. A parent has to be present. And I'm thinking, hopefully mom. (laughs) But my dad says, nope, I'm going with you, but here's what we're going to do. You get, we go through everything, all your possessions. You get every report card. You get every honor society certificate. You get every blue ribbon. You get all your trophies for sports. You get everything that you have. And let me tell you, it was a lot. And, and, and uh, you know, get everything you have and stuff it. And we're going to the judge. We're going to court. We're going to prove to this guy you're, that this is, you're not this kid. You're a good kid. And you made a mistake. I go to the courthouse, scared out of my mind tucked in my silk shirt, you know, it's the 90s, <laughs> my bright red silk shirt, right? Overstuffed manila folder with, with uh, all of these certificates that have accumulated over the years. Judge looks at me and barely looks down at his paperwork, says here you're pulled over for street racing. Yes, your honor. Don't do it again. You could go. Next. And that was it. Here are two things I felt. One, tremendous amount of relief. I, I, I seriously thought that day I was going to jail for the rest of my life. <laughs> Second, if I'm om- honest, not Amish, honest, <laughs> I felt robbed of my opportunity to vindicate myself. I didn't get to plead my case. You didn't even give me a chance to tell you how awesome I was. You didn't even give me a chance to prove to you what a good kid I am. How many kids do you have coming in here that, that scored in the top 10 of the national spelling test? Now, being right in Kentucky, Mayamo Pedro gets you in the top 10. Okay, so I just want to be clear there. It wasn't because I was good in Kentucky, but how many people come in with this repertoire? The judge would be right to say, I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you think you are. You are in front of me for one reason and one reason alone. You are a lawbreaker. You may have done some measure of good, but you have fallen short of what the law requires and you stand before me today to be judged. It was as if the judge is telling me, if you desire anything good from me, it will be based on one thing and one alone, my mercy. And Jesus wants the Pharisees to know, and anyone who seeks to justify themselves, it is possible to do good and beneficial things, but there is no amount of following the law or the rules or rejecting evil or following CDC guidelines or rejecting CDC guidelines that will fix fix the disease in your heart. And when pressure is applied to your life, what flows out 
will be the result of if you have received the compassion of God or not. I know every one of us in this room, and at least I assume to a high degree of certainty, every single one of us in this room wants justice. But what we really need is mercy. We need the Lord's compassion. We need the Lord's mercy. We need His pity. We need the heart of God and the eyes of God to look on every single one of us and His initial reaction not to be justice, but to be mercy. If you and I get anything from the hand of God other than His anger and wrath and eternal punishment, it will be because of His compassion on us. But what about justice? That's important, right? Yes, it is. God is a God of justice. We should be a champion for both. But let me show you how God reconciles his demand for justice and his heart of compassion. He exercises his justice by sending his son who received the full blow of God's wrath, the full blow of his punishment and anger for our sin. He prosecutes our crime and brings justice to our sins by punishing Jesus, who never sinned, not even once. When God is merciful to us, he does not just, he doesn't evaporate our sin, right? Do you think that, well, God forgives me because that's what he does. He loves just giving forgiveness, giving compassion. It doesn't evaporate into thin air. It's placed on Christ. The law of God is vindicated. The law of God is upheld. It's the sins of God are punished. The sins of us against God are punished when Jesus hangs on the cross as a sinless man and dies in our place. He's merciful to us because he is just and he punishes Jesus. Compassion comes from a deep awareness that the compassion of God has been poured out on us due to no merit of our own. This is the gospel. I mean, this is the good news. Do you get it? Do you understand it? The, the gospel is not found in this passage in such a way that makes us think, don't be like the people who walk over justice or walk over this dying man and go and do good. That's not the gospel. The good news is that when you have failed to be like Christ and obey his commands and be compassionate, those sins have fallen on Jesus and he has loved you still. Do you get it? Have you received it? The more that we see ourselves as that dying man in the street with no help of our own, crying out for mercy and seeing the love of God being poured out on us, the more we see ourselves as that person, the more when we are squeezed, when pressure comes in, will we see a heart of compassion be poured out. You've seen that in your own life. You've seen it happen. When you're sick, when you need help, 
Maybe some of you have rarely been, you're rarely in a position where you need help. Remember, I'll never forget it. I remember a professor coming from the Congo to, pre, to teach us at seminary, and he says, when you're sick, you go to Walgreens, and when we're sick, we get on our knees and plead for God's mercy. Put it in perspective, what it, what it feels like to need God at every moment. I woke up this morning with a heavy heart, and my first thought was, God, I need you today so bad. And then I thought, do I need him any more today than any other day? Do I need him less certain days when things are going good? Absolutely not. My life completely depends on him. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us, not the good news of what we've done for him. The lawyer in our passage says he sought to justify himself. He's asking Jesus, how much is enough? I've done all of these things. I've done all of these good things. I'm not a, I'm not a bad person. How much is enough? Who is my neighbor? Who should I really give myself to and care for? And, in, and how much? And Jesus confronts the categories that this man thinks in. It's not about being bad or good or how hard you work or how often you you do these things or not do these things. It's about receiving Christ as your only hope. It's by understanding your complete and utter need in Him and seeing that He came in your moment of struggle and rescued you. Therefore, Christians ought to exercise their compassion more than any other person or group or movement because we, above any other, know what it's like to need it and then receive it. We know more than any group or person on earth what it's like to be completely hopeless and to need God's mercy. And Jesus doesn't stop there. It's not just this intellectual knowledge that we need to understand what compassion looks like and to receive it from God. We need to give it. He says, go, you go and do likewise. This, well, the more that we receive the grace of God in our life and his mercy, the more we dwell deeply on who he is and what he's done for us, the more it will overflow into acts of compassion and mercy for others, especially those close to us and especially those in need. What does it look like for the Christian to give compassion? We can follow the parable for clues. Let me give you a few that I hope can be applied in your life. First, we must be willing to open our eyes to the struggles of others. You know what I mean? We need to stop telling people that their struggling is pretend. We need to stop telling people their suffering is made up or their, their hurts aren't really that bad or their, their predicament that they have found themselves in is really their own fault, even if those things are true. Or even say things like, why are you hurting? I'm not hurting. We need to open our eyes to the struggle of others to see people as we come along the way and come along their path. We ought to look at their struggle, be filled with compassion, you see, we, no matter what the cause of it is, even if it's the cause of their own sin, 
You see, we come into this world, all of us, the same. We come in broken in three different ways. We come into the world broken just by our sin nature and the guilt that's been passed down to us because of, because of the sin of Adam and Eve and passed down through our family of faith. We, we break ourselves, right? We, we have sin in our own life and all of us have had to be uh, accountable to the sins of our life and held to the consequences of those sins. And thirdly, we are broken by people outside of us. People do things to us beyond our own power and control, and those things break us. We're broken by the world, we're broken by ourselves, and we're broken into the world. We can't just say, why are you hurting? I'm not hurting. I did this nine years ago, actually, and, and many times since, but nine years ago, one st- sticks out really clear to me. My wife was sick, and I mean like real, like both ends kind of sick. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> It's okay, she doesn't watch my sermons. Uh, Come on, power through it. Come on. Stop your whining. You're sick, so what? Life goes on, power through. Then I got it. (laughs) Never been sicker. Never whined more. Did that make me compassionate to her? Yep. Why? Because I was able to see her struggle and understand it. Now, here's, we all know that, right? We, we, we've experienced things like that. But here's the point. The point is not to wait until you're laying half dead in the ditch to realize you don't want to be there. You don't need to have the same experiences of somebody else to have a reaction of, I don't understand but I want to see your suffering. I don't want to walk over you. Because I I wouldn't want to be in that situation. So see, we open our eyes to see their struggle. Second, we must honor the image of God in all people. The Bible teaches that the holiness and dignity of God has in some way been imparted to all of humanity so that every single Human life is sacred, and every human being has dignity. Some years ago, not that long ago, Georgia Regents University did a study to explore how people often value the life of animals over human life. I know what you're thinking. I know those people. If you don't know those people, you're that people. <laughs> you're, you're those people. People were asked, as they saw, uh, they were given a scenario, and they saw an out-of-control bus veering out of control on a road. And towards two different scenarios, one towards a dog and the other towards an immigrant. Someone of their, not, not their ethnicity and nationality. And they had to choose, who were you going to save? 40% of participants saved the dog. That's 40% too high. Can we agree on that? Now, what if I said it was 6% and you're thinking 94%, not bad. 6% is too high. Why is it 
And I see myself doing it. Why is it that I just, I, I, I drown, I, I just, my head is drowned out with all these things of people dying, people dying, and then there's a commercial from the ASPCA, and I'm like, oh man, what can I do? What can I do to help? You know, Sarah McLaughlin comes on, and she's singing, and you ever found yourself having more compassion for animals than people? Well, it's their fault for living in that neighborhood. That's what happens. You ever, you ever given money to people in the street corner because they had a dog with them? But if they didn't, you're just like, well, they have to, the dog has to eat. What's the point? Being made in the image of God means that every single person, regardless of their circumstances, are beings of infinite, inestimable, and inestimable value. <laughs> this carries with it the right and worth for every person to never be mistreated or harmed. Before we get into the details of what to do, we, we must agree to the truth that all people are imprinted with the very honor and dignity of the God who made them. Even if their breaking in circumstances come from their actions or somebody else's. No matter it, from, from the time of conception to the, to the last moments of their breath on earth. And everywhere in between. I've had people, I've, I've, I've been part of conversations even this year of people talking about and, and even revealing this mentality of, yeah, but the people dying from coronavirus are over 75. Yeah, they're people over 75. Yeah, but, you know, these, 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 these homes are just kind of, and I quote, heaven's waiting room. Every single person imprinted with the very honor and dignity of God, and to disregard that honor and dignity, even in the slightest bit, is to dishonor the dignity of God himself. That is what sets us apart, the crown of his creation from every other created being. Lastly, how do we do, how do we give compassion? We must respond externally with efforts of relief. Of course, it is a good step to internalize this, to pray about this, to desire in our hearts to be a person of compassion, to receive the compassion of God, and let the grace of God transform our hearts inwardly. But naturally, it will overflow into external efforts of relief. By picking a Samaritan, helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more commanding way to say that everyone in need, regardless of race, politics, class, religion, or fault, is your neighbor. All of this happens in spite of the discomfort that we might encounter. We can accomplish these things by weaving ourselves into the lives of others around us, knowing their struggles, hearing their struggles, having compassion on their struggles, and seeking to the best of our ability to help bring relief to those struggles. Some things we can do, some things obviously we cannot do. Many of God's commands cannot be obeyed without living out this committed, sacrificial, and connected relationship with others. 
It's true to say that we are least like Jesus when the thought of our lives being inconvenienced causes us to ignore the pain and hurting of others. When we often say, I can't help that person, what we're really meaning at times is, I can't help that person without it inconveniencing me. Compassion loses, sacrifices, it gives, it pours out. C.S. Lewis famously said, all true friendship begins when one person looks at another person and says, you too? The same could be said said about compassion. We look at another person. We see that we share the image of God with that person. We see that we've been created with the same level of dignity and honor and value. And we see that we share something that our only hope is the grace of God in our life. And we are able to say, you too, and maybe sometimes our struggles are different and even at times worlds apart, but there is so much we have in common. We are made in the image of God and we are in desperate need of the compassion of God. But instead of saying you too and seeing how we are made like this person and and gifted with the grace of God, sometimes we don't say you too, but we say not me or not mine, not my problem, Not my struggle, not my people, not my fight, not my neighborhood. I've never done that. That's why I don't want those consequences, so I don't commit those crimes. So that's not me. Remember what Jesus has done for us. He looked upon our struggle and he had every right. There was only one person who has ever had any right and was justified in looking at us and saying, not my problem. But he didn't say that. And we are thankful that he didn't say that. He could have said, not my fault, not my responsibility, not my problem or my struggle. My command was clear and you still failed. But instead, he looked at humanity and all of creation that groaned out for relief and for help. He saw our pain. He rolled up his sleeves and he gave his life for us. He took our guilt upon his shoulders and he nailed it to the cross. And so the Bible gives us Jesus, not just a a code of morality or a code of integrity, not just to go and do this or follow this example, but gives us Jesus and tells us, get as intimately close as you can, as you possibly can to Jesus in every moment of your life until you increasingly live out the identity of Christ and his compassion for you on other people. As a person who is so in tune of your neediness and you're prone to sin until it overflows into compassion for others. Are you thankful that when Jesus looks upon you, he did not say, not my problem? But instead, he had compassion. Then go and do likewise.